Now, in preparing 1 Kings chapter 2, in reading of the, the executions, the exiles that, that Solomon enforces to establish his throne, I, I have to admit, it's overwhelmingly violent. And, and I actually thought to myself, it, it almost sounds like a, a mob movie, the story of mafia violence. And so I, so I Googled, what are, the, what are the best mob movies? And one of the movies that, that comes up near the top of the list, and I, I've not seen the movie, so, so you, you cannot go watch it and say, my pastor told me. I only, read, I only read a summary of it online. But one of the movies that's always near the, the list of the best mob movies is Goodfellas. The 1990 Academy Award-nominated film with Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci. And, and here's a summary of it, all right? And, and tell me... Tell me if this sounds familiar. He's eager to take a prominent place in the family business. It started simply enough. When he was first caught, he only received a slap on the wrist. As his grab for power and wealth gets more daring, he becomes increasingly dangerous. He takes greater risks with family, greater risks with women, and he becomes more violent. When he parties... Things can get out of hand. Life begins to unravel. He knows his own life is at risk. Everything he values could be lost. And the murders begin to pile up. Now, the, the problem is, that could be the summary of our biblical chapter, right? If it sounds like a mob movie, then maybe something has gone wrong here. And, and, and didn't you feel it as I read? where you, you're not quite sure if Solomon's doing the right thing? I mean, the narrator seems to make it clear to us that this is the right thing. I mean, we're, we're told in verse 12, you can look there again, Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. And then we have the, the lists of, of the men that he deals with. And the chapter ends with, again, the, the repetition of that phrase, the kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hand. And, and partway through the chapter, back in, back in verse 24, Solomon himself says that it's God who has established the throne securely. And again, that's not, that's, that's not language that is, that is just, just for this chapter. That's actually the language taken from, from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that promise of an eternal kingdom given to David, that God himself would establish the kingdom. So, so from the framework of the chapter... It seems clear that Solomon has done the right thing. But as you listened to it, didn't it feel horrific? I mean, poor Benaiah barely gets his sword cleaned off before he's sent out to deal with another one of these, these treasonous men. And so, so let's, let's just first deal with that question. Is the, is the kingdom firmly established? And we've seen the, the swift execution of justice. Because remember, we saw in chapter 1 that Solomon is the one established rightfully as the king. Remember, his brother Adonijah wanted to be king, and so he, so he tried to make himself king. And in the midst of that, he, David realized the, 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 the struggle, and he made Solomon the king because Solomon was the one to whom the promise was given. And so Solomon's throne has been rightly established. And so each of these men who, 
who has rebelled against him is guilty of treason. And the judgment, the right judgment that comes upon them is death. And so we see how how Solomon quickly executes this, this justice. First, we have Adonijah. He's, remember, the older brother. He's the one who tried to make himself king. And so Adonijah comes and and he tries to enlist Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. You know what? He's going to say no to me because it's me. But if you go and ask him, then he'll probably say yes to you. After all, what good son could refuse his mother? Especially when we read it on Mother's Day. But what is... What does he ask for? What does Adonijah want? He wants a wife. He wants Abishag. And and remember who she is. The most beautiful woman in the kingdom. Remember in chapter 1, David was so old and frail that they could not keep himself warm no matter how many blankets they put on him. So they found the most beautiful virgin in the kingdom to lay beside him as a bed warmer and keep him warm. And so initially, it just seems like maybe he just wants a beautiful woman as his bride. But, but how does Solomon respond? And, and honestly, Bathsheba, it's because we can't hear her saying this, we don't know whose side she's on. We don't know if she's on Adonijah's side of like, oh, that seems like a reasonable request, I'll go ask. Or if she's on his side, sure, I'll go ask for you because we know what he's going to do when I ask him for this. She might be on Solomon's side. We don't, you don't know the tone. Right? Because the tone matters. If, if, if your wife or your mother says to you, the trash is full, that usually means something, right? It's not just a, a declaration about, oh, that's an interesting fact. I should, I should keep track of that. No, because sometimes the, the tone. Or, or if somebody says to you, it's time to go. If they say it joyfully, it could be the excitement of, of, a, of a child getting ready to go, to, go to, to grandma's house. It's time to go. It's time to go. Or it could be the it's time to go. You're done. You need to leave. And so we don't, we don't know exactly, we don't know exactly Bathsheba's role in this of, oh, very well, I will speak to the king for you. Because she may very well know, well know what will happen. Because how does Solomon interpret this request? He says, look, look at verse 23. Why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. Why? Because if he can sleep with one of his father's concubines, and and yes, we, we remember the detail that David did not sleep with her. He did not know her in that way. But if he could sleep with one of the king's concubines, then then everything that belongs to the king should be his. That was exactly what his older brother, Absalom, and his his name was mentioned in here. Absalom's been dead for a long time. But Absalom tried to take the kingdom. And he was so effective that David had to flee the city of Jerusalem. And so, so Absalom thought, well, how do I prove to everyone that I'm really the king? You know what? If I sleep with his concubines, everybody will know I'm king. And so they set up a tent on the roof of the of the palace so that people would know what was happening. And so when Adonijah comes and makes this request, this is not a naive request. This is not merely the desire for a woman's hand in marriage. He is once more through a back door trying to get the kingdom. And so Solomon's response, 
that you might as well request the kingdom for him. And Solomon's, Solomon's instructions that, that Adonijah be killed are the right and just response to a treasonous act of one who has already tried to take the throne. Now, Abiathar, the priest, we, we meet him next. Remember, he's the, the high priest who sided with Adonijah in the attempted coup. And so David does not execute him because he's a man of the cloth, because he was the one who ministered before the Lord. He was the one who, who carried the ark of the Lord. But he tells him, you leave and you never come back. The priest is exiled. Now, Joab, following David's commands, Joab is the, the violent warrior general. But again, he sided with Adonijah. And we were told at the beginning of the chapter that back in verse 5 that, that he killed Abner and Amasa. And you'd have to go back and, and read all of 2 Samuel to see that. But in both instances, he killed them not on the, on the battlefield, but he betrayed them. He betrayed the, the trust that David had placed in them because they were men who had the possibility of taking his position. He was the commander of, of David's armies, but both of those men, if they got close enough to David, were rivals to his position. And so in cold blood, even despite David's warnings, Joab killed Abner and Amasa. And so what does Joab do? He runs again, like we saw Adonijah do in the previous chapter. He runs and, and clings to the, the altar of God and thinks, my blood won't be shed here. This is, again, the place of holy sacrifice. I won't be killed here. Maybe, maybe my life will be saved. But Solomon sends Benaiah. And, and, and look, at, look, at what, look at what Joab says when Benaiah comes. Look at verse 30. Benaiah says to Joab, The king says, come out. Stop clinging to the altar and come out of the tent. And Joab answered, no, I will die here. And so Solomon gives him what he asks for and kills him there. Now, Shemai is one that we, we haven't seen yet in 1 Kings. David mentions him as a Benjamite, a, a man from the tribe of Benjamin who sided with Saul, the previous king, the king before David so much so that he threw rocks and shouted curses at David. And David spared his life, but he makes clear. He makes clear to his son what he should do, and he trusts Solomon's wisdom. And so Solomon will not kill him, but confines him to a house arrest. And yet that only lasts a few years. Remember, Jerusalem at this time would have been a, a, a small city, several thousand people. And he's confined to this small several acres of land. He's not allowed to leave and cross the Kidron Valley. He's not allowed to go back to the tribe of, of Benjamin. He's not allowed to conspire against the king. He's under house arrest, but within a few years, he chases his slaves to Gath, breaking his promise, and so he is put to death. Now, the security of Solomon's kingdom requires the elimination of the enemies. But it almost sounds purely political here, doesn't it? Like a mafia don eliminating the, the rival claims to, to power and money. Now, now this week, we, we as a family had, had some anxiety in our house. Because on Monday, 
while I was typing a paper for school, I hear this shriek from the basement. There was a snake, a snake in the basement. And it was... (laughs) Now, I don't like snakes. And based on the scream, you can understand my wife doesn't like snakes either. So by the time I ran to the garage and came back to, 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 to scoop the snake up and get the snake out of the house, the snake had disappeared. So we searched everywhere in this basement, except that it had crawled under a doorframe into the wall. Now, we figure that out now a couple of days later when, it's, when a snakeskin was halfway into the wall. But for several days, there was a snake in the house. Nobody, nobody sleeps well. I mean, Samuel, when he first came home from school, he wouldn't even stay on the first floor because that was too close to the basement. He would go halfway up the steps just to make sure he was safe. Because when there's an enemy in the house, nobody is secure. But, but in, in 1 Kings 2, it, it's more than the, the political establishment of Solomon's kingdom. Because this is, this is a theological This is also a theological declaration. Each of of the men who who is executed, I mean, remember their actions. Because they're, Adonijah, he desired a a beautiful woman. He, He wanted power. He was given mercy in chapter one. He was allowed to live, but mercy was not enough for him. There was something more he needed, something more he felt like he deserved. Joab lived a life of violence, seeking power. Shimei left to, to bring back his property, even though he knew it might cost him his life. Now, is this how, how we might respond? Have you ever, have you ever in the face of God's mercy thought, you know what, I deserve something more than this. I don't deserve the difficult circumstances. I deserve greater blessings. I don't deserve the place that God has put me in. I deserve something more. Have you ever justified your actions thinking, you know what, I don't think anybody will even notice. I'm just going to slip out of town, grab my property, get back into town. I don't think it'll hurt anybody. Nobody knows except me. So that's how you and I, you and I are quick to justify our sin. Because remember, remember against whom these men have sinned. Their rebellion is against King Solomon, the rightful king whose throne has been established by God. Their rebellion is against God himself. If you rebel against God's king, God's anointed king, anointed by the the priest and the prophet to be set on the throne of his earthly kingdom, If you rebel against that king, then you have rebelled against God himself. And so, yes, is is there some shrewd politics that takes place in this chapter? It seems so. By the end of the chapter, all the rivals to the throne. But in each instance, as we read through it, we realize that, that Solomon has the right to do what he has done. But also remember, only Solomon has the right to do what he's done. Only Solomon is the anointed king of Israel, which means who has the right to do that kind of thing today when somebody hurts them, somebody harms them? Not you, not me, none of us. 
because there right now is not an earthly king on the throne of God's kingdom. Where is the king on his throne? It's the king, he is the king who reigns in heaven. He is the one with the, the power and the authority. And so, so we ask the question, is the kingdom firmly established? And we answer it, yes, the kingdom is firmly established. We, we feel the tension in this passage between justice and mercy. The king doing the right thing, and yet couldn't the king have been merciful? And we see his mercy in, in multiple instances. He first let Adonijah live until Adonijah again tried to steal the kingdom. He first let Shimei live in, in house arrest. He allowed Abiathar the priest to be sent into exile. And so there, there are glimpses of mercy. But there is this tension, even as you and I read it, of is this really justice? Is this justice? Or even if we go back to the, to the beginning, as David, right before his death, is speaking to Solomon, we, we, we see an even greater tension, one that, one that really pulls on the, the whole fabric of the Old Testament. Look back at what, what David says to Solomon, back in, chapter two, back in our chapter, chapter 2, verse 2. David says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as is written in the law of Moses, so they may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Now, that's the kind of charge that you would expect at the beginning of a book as, as, a, as the, the mantle is passed from one generation to another. It's the kind of words that, that Moses would have spoken to Joshua or Joshua would have spoken to the people near the end of his life. But, but look at verse 4. He, he, tells, he tells Solomon to do this, that the Lord may keep his promise to me. And then I want you to notice that, that David puts the promise in a conditional form. He, he begins it with an if. If you do this, then God will bless you. All right, verse 4. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So here it's conditional. Only if Solomon obeys will the kingdom be kept secure. But, but how was the promise spoken to David? You'll have to flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's the book that comes right before 1 Kings. But in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is what the Lord declared to David. So Nathan the, the prophet speaks these words to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, let me begin in the second part of verse 11. 2 Samuel 7, 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. See, this promise is unconditional. Even when Solomon disobeys, there's no if, it's a when. When Solomon disobeys, he will be punished, but God will never remove his blessing. And, and that's a tension that, that we feel throughout the Old Testament. Wait, is it dependent upon us obeying God, or, or will God keep his promise even when we disobey? 
But you see, the only way that the kingdom can be firmly established is if we have one who can meet the conditions of God's covenant. But, but notice what God does. He does it himself. Who is the greater son of Solomon, the greater king to whom we're, we're, we're looking forward to? It's Jesus. Jesus who meets this tension of justice and love perfectly. Because he does what is right. Sin is punished. But it is punished in him. See, in this story, you and I are not Solomon. You and I are not the anointed king Jesus is. In this story, you and I are Adonijah and Joab and Shimei, those who have rebelled against God's righteous authority. But in Jesus, God proves his love to us. Jesus is the one who, who meets the conditions of the kingdom. Of the, the, Jesus is the one who, who does everything that is demanded, who perfectly obeys so that God's promise can be kept. You see, the tension of the Old Testament of, of, of how can I obey when I know that, that my sin is there before me is met in Jesus Christ. But, but you and I, we, 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 sometimes, we sometimes still think that, that Christianity is conditional. We think of it in these terms. It, I know Jesus needed to die for me, but, but now it's up to me. If I can do the, the right things, if I can show up at church, if I can go through the motions, if, if I can be good enough, then I'll deserve God's love. But you see, Jesus is showing us his love for us is unconditional. His grace overflows. Think of, think of the way it's described to us in the, in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, when writing to Titus, he, he, he shows us that, w- that we were once those rebelling against God. In Titus 3, verse 3, we read this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You and I lived as Adonijah and Joab. That's the tragic news of our sin. But in Titus 3, the apostle continues in verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, we are not saved if we can be good enough. We are saved even though we have not been good enough. Because Jesus has. See, the good news of the gospel is that even though King David is dead, the promise still lives. We heard the the words of gospel promise from Acts chapter 2 already at the baptism today. That the promise is for you and for your children who are all afar off, but, but just before that in the sermon, the apostle Peter stands before the people and he describes to them what, what Jesus did. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with, your, with joy in your presence. Do you hear what David is saying? David is looking forward to the Holy One who will not see decay in the grave. And so, so, so Peter explains it to the people in Acts chapter two. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on you what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. See, David is dead and buried, and yet the promise lives on. Because the promise is fulfilled through Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed king. Jesus, who is the Christ. Jesus, the one who defeats all of his enemies. Sin and death and the devil are defeated. Jesus has trampled the, his enemies. He is the righteous king in whom we see the perfect justice of God against sin, and yet it's a justice he took upon himself. See, and that's your only hope. Your only hope is if you turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you're trying to trust yourself, you will fail. You cannot meet the conditions of God's kingdom. You cannot defeat the enemies, but Jesus has. And do you hear what is assured to us in the word of God? Hear it again from, from Peter. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that in your word, we hear the hope of the gospel, even in the horror and the bloodshed of, of, of this kingly justice. Lord, we thank you that Jesus himself took the judgment for our sin upon himself. That Jesus died on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. And so, Lord, as we come, Lord, I pray that you would, you would help each one of us to not trust in ourselves, to turn from, from our own goodness, our own righteousness, and turn to Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone. Lord, we thank you for the mercy and grace that is given to us. And so, Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior rejoicing in the grace that has been poured out on us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has gained the eternal victory, that his enemies and ours have been defeated. Lord, we rejoice that Jesus has been raised from the dead and reigns as the King in heaven. So we come to rejoice in his power, in his glory, and his grace. Amen.